This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Sarah Patterson from the University of Michigan. I'm Leslie Hinson from the League of Conservation Voters. I'm Mary Beth Stolt from the University of Northern Iowa. And today, our guest is Jacqueline Wong from the University of South Carolina. Jacqueline is an expert on gender, marriage, work, health, and aging in the life course. She is the author of Competing Desires, How Young Adult Couples Negotiate Moving for Career Opportunities in Gender and Society, and Toward a Theory of Gendered Projectivity and Linked Lives in the Transition to Adulthood in the Journal of Family Theory and Review. She is currently working on a book. Today, we're talking gender, work, and relationships. You're not going to want to miss this. First up, the erasure of Elizabeth Warren. So what's up with the erasure of, of Liz Warren, like in the media, in terms of being a viable candidate? It's something that I have been watching very closely and have thought that maybe there was something that was going on in terms of polling or in terms of something else that I had just somehow missed because she's polling higher than I would say the majority of the people left in left in the race. And yet we stopped talking about her until the Nevada debate. Mm-hmm. Right? So what is going on, folks? Yeah, I thought it was strange how even the polls didn't have her in them. Mm-hmm. It was like she literally disappeared for a second. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and one of the things that, like one of the stories that I felt continued to go on when they did include her in was having her be a surrogate for Bernie Sanders when she was not trying to be anyone's surrogate. So I'm wondering, since this is our show on gender, uh, do you think there's something gender going on here? Well, I think she has a different communication style than some of the other women who were in the pool. And I think that, at least from Iowa, so I was, I have to uh, fully admit that I was not present at caucus. I was flying back from a conference. And so I woke up the next morning and I'm like, what, what happened or what didn't happen? And so I think that there's a particular communication style that we expect of women. And uh, she's defying that in ways um, similar to other women have in the past. And so I think that lots of folks don't know what to do with her. And I think that that's that's really common with some of the other things we're planning on talking about today. But I think that some of the the tension points, the likability discussions, the new campaign on Facebook, which has some swears in it, right? So she's electable if we fucking vote for her. So <laughs> that, but that's hit Facebook recently and it's probably mm-hmm. other places too. But uh, I just think that that connecting the voters' actions to you know polling, all that kind of stuff. So I totally agree that she's not. Uh, where we think she should be. I think she's gotten a lot of coverage on Saturday Night Live in ways that other people have not. I don't know if that that has any, if there's an SNL factor, I have no idea. But I think that has something to do with it, maybe, too. So she has gotten press. She's not appearing maybe where we think she should, but it's still really early. So, yeah. I think what infuriates me um, is that sometimes people will kind of talk about her like she's the same as Bernie Sanders. And so people are like, why not just vote for Bernie? And I think for me, it it feels extra infuriating because it feels like she is demonstrating that she's doing a lot of the work to get to the goals that maybe Bernie is putting forward. And that work is being erased in erasing her as a candidate. And so it just feels funny to me to think about like, 
well, how do we think we're going to get to any of these places? Like, who is going to do the work? Probably some woman like Elizabeth Warren who's not going to get any credit for it. Well, I thought it was interesting how the one response said that she was mean or whatever. Um, And that's interesting because, I mean, there's multiple studies that show that women are judged differently. I mean, even student evaluations and classes, right? But I think there was a study recently that showed when you receive feedback from a boss, if it's a a woman, you rank her as like being more mean. And so I thought of that immediately when I saw that, that it's, it's the interpretation because of who she is. She's also not proposing herself as a, as an ultra feminine woman. And I think there's, I had read something about her. They had asked her questions about her, her daily beauty routine, which is very simple. And I think that that confuses people. So here's this person in a human container that appears to be a woman. We expect these things to happen. It's not happening. What are we going to do? So it's another, on some level, it's a very welcoming and inviting and positive thing. And on another level, it's a, well, she's a chick and she's not wearing enough mascara. So I think that's part of it. Yeah, I will say, you know, if you're talking about makeup, I will say one of one of the things that surprised me the most during the Nevada debate was the new Amy Klobuchar. Mm-hmm. I saw, I was like, Amy. Oh, the haircut? And she's glowing. And she got a new haircut and it looks amazing. And whoever did her makeup was great. And her outfit is great. I mean, I was, I mean, there was a shine on her that I had never seen before. And I knew it was partly because she couldn't contain her joy at the fact that she got her Christmas present early, which was that Mike Bloomberg was on the debate stage. But yeah, I mean, and so I'm wondering also how much, a part of what was going on in terms of the media coverage was that, oh, we've got this new Amy, right? Mm-hmm. Who's out here looking shiny and actually might be the female alternative. I mean, if you think about it, the New York Times themselves tried to split the baby in half when they decided to do their their do their endorsement. And they're like, um, we're gonna actually endorse, we're gonna endorse both of the women, right, in the race. And it's not because we're being coy. It's not because we don't want to be wrong. It's because we think they're both amazing, but they are both so incredibly different. How could you endorse them both? I think it's interesting that you bring up all of the, um, like, makeup and appearance stuff for women because um, some of my other research looks at gender and physical attractiveness and what that does um, for people's um, workplace outcomes mm-hmm. and it totally feels like that narrative of, you know, women who present themselves in the expected ways, like Mary Beth was saying, it's a lot easier to talk about them. And it's a lot easier to kind of like, be nice to them. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, on the other hand, I'm kind of glad that we're not talking about Elizabeth Warren in terms of like, what kind of makeup is she wearing today? Or like, you know, who, who put her outfit together this time? So you know, maybe that gives us a little bit more room to talk about actual policy. But, you know, at the end of the day, if we're not talking about her at all, like what, (laughs) what do we get? No, exactly. And, you know, and I really do hope that we're totally wrong. I really hope that like somehow, you know, there's some technical glitch out there that just her name just can't appear in written form. And that is why none of the media outlets are writing about her. Because if this is the year 2020, 
And the reason why we're not talking about her is because she doesn't present in a certain way, because she likes to swear, and and because she's so incredibly smart. Then I then I don't know. Yeah. Well, what do you all think about um, her being the focus of attention in altern like alternative media sources? So like maybe she is being erased by like CNN and MSNBC, but like she's being talked about in the root, right? Mm-hmm. Like maybe other people are are talking about her in ways that are, I don't know, maybe more impactful. I'm not sure. Well, I mean, I definitely love the Root article about, about her erasure, right? Basically saying, whoa, whoa, people, right? There, don't remember, she's still here. She hasn't dropped out of the race. We're not saying we're endorsing her, right? But if you're voting for, if you want Bernie because of X, Y, and Z, remember, <laughs> what she has to offer. And if you want, you know, so-and-so because of X, remember, right? And yeah, I mean, you know, and I think that venues like The Root, I mean, if what we're saying is that, you know, this candidate has to deliver a certain demographic, maybe maybe being carried in, in, you know, in alternative press outlets actually will provide her with a boost and not being covered so much in, primary media outlets might actually save her from, you know, from some of the sort of excoriating, you know, critiques that some of these press outlets are levying against some of the others. So it, it could end up being win-win. I don't know. So do you think the, the request for candidates to reveal their health records, do you think that that will benefit if it ever anything ever happens with it? Because right now people are just denying that they're going to do it. So do you think that that would help her or help any of the women candidates? I just always remember when Donald Trump released his health records and his doctor said he is the healthiest individual who has ever lived in the history of humanity, period. Right. So I'm just saying. (laughs) Cauliflower. So, um, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how I would feel about the health records thing and how that could be gendered because we, you know, we have, we have a ton of research on how healthcare access and healthcare provision is incredibly gendered where, you know, like women's pain is not taken seriously, particularly if you're a woman of color, uh, particularly if you're like a poor woman of color, who's also a sexual minority. Um, So I don't really know what to expect if Elizabeth Warren or Amy Klobuchar um, were to release their health records would they have health conditions that we don't know what to make of and then spin that into a negative? Um, Well, true. It might just be the menopausal measuring stick. And, you know, I think that, I mean, Steinem wrote the essay if men could menstruate a long time ago. So it might Mm -hmm. just bring all that kind of stuff back. So I don't know if it's useful or not. I just think it's interesting when that request is being made and how Mm -hmm. people are denying uh, that request. So, yeah. I mean, I think that, received wisdom is that it can only hurt Bernie Sanders, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know that it would benefit uh, any of the women, but it would only hurt Bernie Sanders. Although I must say, I think he's looking a hundred percent better since he, since he had that procedure, right? He a hundred percent better. So, and, and the other thing too, is I'm not entirely certain, like how the general pub, like what kind of, knowledge and skills the general public has in being able to for themselves read and understand someone else's 
like medical records, right? And so then again, it falls back to the press to spin it in whatever way. So I mean, unless Elizabeth Warren can spin it into her own, like I have a plan to like help make this so that it's less confusing. Cause if I can't even get it together and like, exactly. you know, I have all this help to try to like produce these documents, like how the heck are you going to do this? And how does a lack of access to health records mean that you're going to have poor quality of health provision or like poor outcomes in health? Um, and here's mm-hmm. how I'll fix it. Cause that would be fun. <laughs> and it seems like yeah. it would be on brand. It would be fun and on brand, but then again, going back to these presentation styles, I mean, nobody likes a know-it-all, and they especially don't like a know-it-all woman, right? It seems to me, at least that's been my experience. Um, So I'm just saying. Yeah. It's a good way to put it. Yeah, I always just feel like I'm I'm on my own little cloud because I'm like, I don't know, a know-it-all woman seems like she could be really good at being in charge of things. <laughs> oh, I, I totally believe that. Well, that's like the Ann Coulter uh, tweet, right? Where she was like, she's going to come in and do work and get things done. And it's like, it was meant to be offensive, but... Yeah, you're like, I, oh, yeah. God. <laughs> Thanks, <laughs> sister. <laughs> So recently in the Harvard Business Review, uh, Robin Ellie and Irene Padovic wrote about what's really holding women back. And I just want to read this one piece at the very end of their article. They say, our findings align with a growing consensus among gender scholars. What holds women back at work is not some unique challenge of balancing the demands of work and family, but rather a general problem of overwork that prevails in contemporary corporate culture. So what did you all think? Well, when you had sent it over to me, I was like, oh, I read the like actual article version of this when it first came out because I just thought it was so interesting. And I really, I really like that the authors just pointed to the culprit of overwork being the problem, but it was cool to see how they could show that it became, it became inflected through a problem of gender. And so if it's a woman's problem, we don't care. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I thought it was interesting because it reminded me actually of uh, an article I wrote with Sarah Damaski and Kristen Shuroff that was in Gender and Society um, called Gender and the MBA Differences in Career Trajectories, Institutional Support and Outcomes. And the reason it made me think about that is that we found sort of three groups of people. We found uh, what we call lockstep, um, lockstep, which is basically stable employment, transitory, so people having three or more employers. We looked at people 10 to 12 years post-MBA and then exit the workforce. And the transitory or having like three or more employees was the most common. Uh, but among that group, you really saw gender inequality. So what would happen is that men would move because somebody would literally call them up and be like, I have a job for you, right? And that just didn't happen as much for women. And then when men did leave, even on their own accord, like they went vertically instead of women often moved for some for a horizontal position. And so, you know, this most common categories where you sort of started to see that. And that's what this article made me think about is that it's that sort of, you know, overwork or what kind of positions you're in and which ones women land in and which ones men land in. And if they move, where do they land from there? Um, And so it just reminded me a lot of that. So I'm going to fully disclose here. I did not read the Harvard Business Review article, (laughs) but also I think I'm doing public service here. So um, other than the last portion that you read, Sarah, would someone like to sum up the article? 
Well, this company hired um, the two researchers to come solve their problem of why don't we have any women in leadership positions? So they come in, they're interviewing the employees, they're doing focus groups, they're hanging out. And what they find is that the overwhelming problem is one of overwork, where employees are kind of expected to do this 24-7, 100% devotion to work. And it was actually harming both men and women. But the company kept framing it in this really gendered way in terms of like, why can't we get women to balance work and family so that more of them can end up in our leadership positions? And the researchers found out also that the solutions that they offer to men and women to deal with this overwork situation are different. So they're channeling women into these kind of dead-end part-time jobs that don't have an upward pathway, and they're they're kind of channeling men into different kinds of positions to help them deal with this overwhelming amount of work. Um, and so the researchers made these suggestions to, to the company, like, your problem is the overwork culture. It's harming both men and women. It's not a problem that is specific to women. You are implementing solutions for men and women differently, and that is kind of resulting in this, you know, quote unquote, gap in leadership in terms of gender. But the company refused to believe it and kept spinning the story of women have a unique problem of work family balance. And if only we could solve that problem, then all of our other issues would be solved. So it was kind of a a cultural trope that they were able to use to avoid dealing with the actual root cause, which is overwork for everybody. Mm-hmm. And they tie that back to the ideal worker norm, yeah. which is that we basically should all be overworking, you know, I mean, yeah. or that we should be devoted to our job, which I think is interesting thinking about what you were saying, Jacqueline, in terms of like, can companies let go of that, right? They need us all to be ideal workers. Well, they need us all to be men. I mean, women can't be ideal workers. They they basically talk about that in the article that women who are trying to balance work and family Uh, When they're at work, they're horrible moms. And when they're at home, they're horrible employees. Uh, Missing, you know, for much of the research were people without kids. And so I think that, you know, that's adding more complication to the question. So within the the category of gender, if you have child-free men, how do they get viewed? Are they more ideal? Or are they less ideal? Are they problematic or a risk from the company's viewpoint? Women without children, oh my goodness, there's a list of things that that they're horrible at at work and that they're horrible at when they're not at work. So I think that the ideal worker is a a very modern day unicorn. Mm -hmm. And uh, yet companies really still cling to that. I think that was really clear. Well, I mean, that, I mean, from what you said, the ideal worker, I mean, just goes back to Rosabeth Moss Cantor, right? Yes. You need you need a man who has a wife yes. who can stay at home. They don't necessarily need to have kids, but, you know, having the kids are cute. And she can do all of that extra labor, right, at home so that he can entertain, right, people from the corporation and can do all of that other work, right, that the ideal worker needs to do. But if you're one person doing all of that work, it just can't happen. So I can't believe I just brought up 
men and women of the corporation. I was like, who does that, right? Classic. I've got it on my shelf. I've got it on my shelf. Yeah. No, but, no but the fact that like, we're like, we're, it's, yeah. it's new again, right? Yeah. Yeah. What, yeah. Again, it's astounding to me. Astounding. Yeah. Sarah, like you were saying about, can we get rid of this ideal worker norm? And that reminds me of, I think, a New York Times piece that came out a little while ago that was something like, well, you can never have work-family balance if we continue to live under capitalism. What if the ideal worker is somebody who has robot staff? Would that work? (laughs) You know, then it would matter. Yeah, I don't know. I think always the ideal worker is a man who has women doing all of the extra labor. That's what, I mean, sorry. Does anybody have a Roomba? That's what that made me think. (laughs) (laughs) I don't have one. I don't. don't um, Yeah, I think, uh, you know, if you sort of MacGyver your Roomba. (laughs) You didn't wash dishes? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm sure somebody has tried that. Yeah. I don't know. You can get them to uh, you can get them to figure out how to how to put together a menu and um, answer the phone and <laughs> right and it's offer customer service. Yep, mm-hmm. yep, yeah. It's just uh, it's frustrating. You know, the article was informative, and I, I want to go back and read the the original piece, but it's frustrating to see that this is still a thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it. I mean, it seems like it's becoming even more of a thing, mm-hmm. right? You know. Jacqueline mentioned the New York Times piece that talked about capitalism. And I think that what people often neglect to add when they're talking about capitalism is that we are in a particular stage of capitalism right now, right? We are in this, what people are, what people are calling late stage capitalism and the extractive process, right, of this system is in full force. And it's sort of like, unless we can come in and and create interventions, and I don't mean like, you know, putting robots in everywhere, <laughs> right? Because then what that means is then, then people just don't have jobs and they don't true. have money. No, that's right. That's true. Right? Like there need to be interventions to put the brakes on this extractive process. Otherwise, you know, things are just going to get worse and worse from the perspective of everyone. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that uh, is interesting at the beginning of the article, and I want to go back and read the whole piece, is it states that uh, women made a lot of progress, probably white women in corporate America, as we know, with second wave feminism, gains and, and not gains. In the 70s and 80s, there were a lot of women that entered the workplace and started uh, working up the ladder, uh, but it slowed down in the 90s, and now it's not happening. So what did we, what do we know about the 70s and 80s? What were we doing that we could maybe review and possibly implement parts of that again? See, I don't know that it has to do with workplace policies and gender so much as it has to do with the nature of our economy and the nature of work more generally today, right, than in the 1970s, right? Oh my God, there's there's this book that I love and for whatever reason I can't, oh, this book by the anthropologist Karen Ho called Liquidated, right? Which I think is great. I mean, it's overly long, but, but I think it's great. And she talks a lot about, you know, how, how corporations have changed, how there was a point in time in which corporations were like, okay, fine, you give loyalty to me, labor, I'll give, we'll give some loyalty to you, 
you know, we treat you kind of like part of the family. Sure, we exploit you somewhat, but, you know, whatevs, right? And, you know, when you get a good retirement package. And, and, and this was still going on as women were entering the workforce in the 1970s through the 1980s. And then all of a sudden, like, corporations changed. And, you know, we had this flip where supposedly corporations only started to care about shareholder value. And when you only care about shareholder value, which actually I think if you cared about making money for shareholders, you might actually want to treat labor a little bit better. But when that happened, I think not only did it make things harder for everybody, but it in particular made things very difficult for people who had obligations, serious obligations outside of the office, right? And you know, and that's people with children, but also people with, with older parents, right? Or, or or with siblings that they might have to take care of. That's what I think is going wrong. Mm-hmm. I wonder what Aaron Kelly's new book, Aaron Kelly mm-hmm. and Phyllis Moen's new book, Overload, says about this. Like, it just came out, so I haven't gotten a chance to read it, but I think that they might be making an argument like the one that you made, Leslie, that just the nature of work has changed a lot um, since the 70s. And you know, if we're relating this back to the Harvard Business Review article on this culture of overwork, like I, mm-hmm. I can totally see that. It's just interesting that this overarching problem is kind of, you know, inflected in this old language of, you know, gender and biological essentialism and like, well, women can't do it because they have to take care of babies, mm-hmm. but, but it's not really helping us move forward today. And I think that goes back to your question, Mary Beth, of like, what do we need? What do we need to do to kind of get those changes to happen now? And I think maybe, maybe one of the things that we need to think about is like, well, what is the actual root problem here? Um, And that problem is this like overwork culture. It is the overemphasis on um, shareholder value and like profit and, you know, Mm -hmm. just milking all the labor for what it's worth. Mm -hmm. Well, the other thing, too, I think it's about health insurance and that our insurance is tied to our workplace. And so talking with people from other countries and they're speculating on our lives and vice versa. And, you know, there's an assumption that American workers just aren't doing enough to try to make change. And I'm like, yeah, we can't because we're working. (laughs) We're we're working. Sorry, I'm calling from the office and I'm multitasking. Thank you very much. But, you know, if you lose your, you're going to lose your insurance every time, you know, it's just the massive upheaval of changing a job is changing everything about your job. And so I think there's so many components that are part of our whole career lives, but they all get separated out and they all have to be managed and negotiated differently. And they're all up to if we're working or overworking uh, Mm -hmm. consistently. So I think we're in a unique situation, problematic, but unique. Yeah, that that reminds me of something that one of my interviewees said recently. Um, So um, Sarah mentioned that I have one article in Gender and Society called Competing Desires, where I interview all these couples who are making these um, career and relocation decisions together. So basically it's all of these people who are finishing up their graduate and professional degrees and trying to find their jobs and launch their careers. So I went back to do a five-year follow-up interview with everybody last year, um, which was really fascinating. Um, and one of the one of the people in my study, I just really remember feeling really stuck in their job because of health insurance, where it was like, you know, 
I would love to, um, you know, take a shot and try to apply for like all these other places. Like, I think this role would make a lot more sense for me, et cetera, et cetera. But the benefits here are just so good. And in particular, it was a woman who was really concerned about the benefits that she could give to her child in terms of there's like daycare, um, you know, help. There's like excellent health insurance for like our whole family, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so it was it was an interesting conversation because it kind of felt like, well, he's taking off and doing the thing that he wants to do in his career and like doing what he wants with his professional skills. And I'm stuck not because of these reasons that have been um, explained in the literature, but the reason is like, I can't leave the benefits. <laughs> like it's, it's too important for our family. Mm-hmm. You've been listening to The Annex, a sociology podcast. Special thanks to our guest, Jacqueline Wong. Special thanks as well to Joe Cohen for letting me take over the podcast today. We're on the web at sociocast.org slash annex, on Twitter at sociannex, and on Facebook at Annex Sociology Podcast. Our producer is Lizbeth Moreno, music by Lena Orsa. On behalf of Leslie, Marybeth, and Jacqueline, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.